Hey everybody, it's Brian here, and I'm welcoming you to another episode of the podcast from another world, where Dave talks about Capricorn One with a very special guest. I'll let him say who that guest is, but I hope you guys are enjoying these episodes. It's another perspective and different type of podcast than what you normally get from me, and it's another little bonus for you guys. And so I really do hope that you enjoy the time and effort that Dave does put into making these episodes for you. Don't forget that the following episode, not this one, but the episode that's going to be coming up in a little bit after the Mortal Kombat Annihilation episode, uh, is going to be a very special episode. And we'll talk a little bit more about that once uh, this episode is over. So, without further ado, please enjoy this bonus podcast from The Podcast from Another World. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Can you hear me? Over. Had I mentioned these other solar systems, it is to indicate that life can and does exist on other planets as well as our own. Sounds like, well, just as though you're describing some form of, of super carrot. That's nearly right, Mr. Scott. This carrot, as you call it, is constructed an aircraft capable of flying some millions of miles through space. The world's greatest battle was fought and won today by the human race. Soldiers and civilians met the first invasion from another planet. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the sky. Welcome to another episode of The Podcast from Another World. I'm your host, Phantom Dark Dave. I want to start off by saying thank you to everybody that listened to the last episode. It appears the new format went over well, and people really enjoyed listening to Neil and I talk about Grizzly. And you know, I got to thinking, I want there to be another movie, but it could be called, it could be about a polar bear, right? And let's be in the settings and have the Antarctic and the snow or the North Pole, I don't care. I would see a a killer polar bear, and they could call it Polar. Or maybe it could be a polar bear who's not sure if he wants to kill, and then they could just call it Bipolar Bear. I don't know. We'll see. But today I have another guest, and he's making his debut to the show. He is the host of the Fave Five from Fans podcast. Please welcome Jamie Ray. Hi, Dave. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast from another world. I'm so very excited. 
I'm honored to have you on here, man. And I have to go ahead and let the world know that I'm finally making up for my last hiccup because you were the one other person who kind of got screwed over in the beginning when we did all this fancy recording because the audience doesn't know you and I recorded an episode and it was lost and the audio just trashed out. And so this is me apologizing and still somehow managing to get you in. I'm so excited, man. And that one, poof. That one's over and done. We're going to move on to this new, exciting format. That's right. But you know what? Everybody who knows me knows eventually that wheel's going to turn a little bit more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to eventually do that episode again. I'm ready for it. <laughs> I just didn't want to go back to back. And the cool thing is, today, we are going to stick with Something similar to the last episode in that we're going to stay in the 1970s and we're going to take a look at a 1977 sci-fi thriller, Capricorn One. Capricorn One. What really happened? To the men of Capricorn One, I bring you greetings from your fellow Americans. There's some people, if I don't give them the all-clear signal, they'll explode it. have crossed the last great frontier. Something's wrong, and I don't know what it is. You are the basic truth in us. You are the reality. Whatever story you want will turn out to be garbage. And you have shown us what we are, a single people. I think you're a pervert! We will never let you down. They try to kill me. Would you and your men please follow me? That's right. We are diving back into the world of sci-fi, and I'm happy to say that this was one and the first of the movies that was on my top ten sci-fi films that I wanted to talk about on this podcast. So... When I set out to do this episode, I started asking around to see who would be the perfect guest for the show, and Jamie raised his hand higher than the spaceship that was supposed to go to Mars. And so, Jamie, I just gotta know, man, like, I'm interested. Can you tell me about your first time that you watched Capricorn 1? Oh, yeah, man. Well, when the movie came out, I was just, I had just turned seven years old. So I don't believe we saw it at the theater. But I know we saw it at TV. I mean, excuse me, on TV as a family. And it's ingrained in my brain, this movie. It's it's so has so many layers and so many scenes. But and I know we'll talk about it when it gets to it. I will never forget Sam Watterson climbing that cliff while telling a joke. <laughs> it, I mean, watching it again these last uh this last week, I've watched it two and a half times now. Um, it, when I'm sitting there, it makes me feel like I'm nine, ten years old again. Um, and the movie just, I was so, so into uh, NASA. Uh, this was when the space shuttle was starting to come out. And uh, I just want to tell you a quick story. Um, I, had, I was just enamored with NASA. And when the Enterprise first rolled out, I had all of these questions. And so I would ask my father, I said, Dad, you know, how does it not burn up? How does it do this? How does it do that? And my dad would say something to me that sticks with me to this day. He said, I don't know. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, okay. He says, but we're going to find out. I was like, okay, cool. And maybe two weeks later, 
I come home from school and I go to my room and they're sitting on, and I could see it. I close my eyes. I can see it because I had this mustard colored corduroy throw that went over my bed and sitting right in the middle of it was this plain nondescript brown envelope and the big label on it said Jamie Ray and right up there in the corner NASA man and I opened this thing up it was an official press pass packet that they would give out for all and they had everything pictures all that so every space movie that came out afterwards I was on it and Capricorn one has stuck with me for more years than I'll you know, do the math for. Um, but I, when you said you were doing those shows, I want, I did, I raised my hand higher and I, Ooh, 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 Mr. Kata, so that I could do it with you. And I'm so excited. We're going to get to do it. And the funny thing is not a lot of people that I know have seen this movie and I barely make that crowd because I just watched it for the first time this year. Yeah. Yeah. It is. A, it is and I, I don't know what you think, but it is a powerful movie. And, there's so many little things that you catch every time you rewatch it. Um, there's so many different layers and so many different interactions. Um, I think it's just a wonderful movie. And amazingly enough, um, getting into the, to, to the, how it was written, the director, Peter Himes, he, he wrote it too. And basically he had written it right after they landed on the moon. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, oh, wow, you know, that whole moon landing, faking conspiracy and stuff uh, all kind of plays in together in this. And see, that right there is what got me to watch the movie, because I am so interested in everybody's thought. Did we land on the moon? Didn't we land on the moon? Uh So how do you think it is? You know, did the director of The Shining really do the moon land? You know, so many things. And it's so funny, because if you believe that at all, then this movie screams to you. Because the one thing, Jamie, I'll tell you that I loved about this movie, which we're going to get into, is the fact that when it starts off, it wastes no time. It gets right into the thick of it. That's right. Right, right, opens up right in the control room. You see the sun coming up right over that Apollo rocket, and then it's T-minus it's 30 minutes before they lift off. And we also have to mention that this movie, if that wasn't enough, it is littered with great actors and actresses. Uh, great performances from all of them. And one of them, the main character, played by James Brolin, we should all know because the same year he did this, he did The Car, and then just two years later, he did Amityville Horror. He was on fire. He was. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that part later. <laughs> but you know what I am going to say is that's a spoiler. If people like James Brolin, he might be popping up in a couple more episodes down the road. I love the car. I've got the Arrow Blu-ray, and it's the um, edition from that you can only watch in the UK. I literally bought a Blu-ray non-region free just to watch that movie. Nice. Oh, God, I love that film. Great poster uh-huh. work, too. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, well, that's a whole other show. Never that mind. Show. I wonder if Neil <laughs> could put my face on a car. Yeah, we'll figure that oh, out later. We'll... Make me look like something on a maximum overdrive. <laughs> <laughs> Two of Barbara Streisand's husbands are actually in this movie. James Brolin and Elliot Gould were married to her at one time. Interesting. Yeah, so how do you think that went down in, uh, in the green room? Uh, in the 70s, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'd love to talk about the stars because there are so many good actors in this movie. Of course, you've got Elliot Gould, uh, James Brolin, and then the sultry Brenda Vaccaro. 
uh, Sam Watterson, who goes on to um, Law and Order, O.J. Simpson. And that's all we'll say. <laughs> Hal Holbrook, Karen Black, Telly Savalas. Uh, but one of my surprise favorites has to be James Karen as the vice president Price and the small role of the fake control room guy played by James B. Sicking from Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Mm. Captain Styles. Yes. Oh, Love that movie. And of course it's directed, like we said, and written by Peter Himes, who also did another favorite space movie of mine that we've talked about on a podcast, uh, Outland from 1981. Yep, Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. And then of course it did 2010. And I was going to say, and another movie on my top 10 list is 2010. So that's actually the reason that I got this movie, Capricorn 1, because I'm a fan of his because of his work on 2010. And I was like, wait, wait, he did Capricorn 1 also? That's all you had to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he spit out some great film. So, um, okay, that's all. I just want to say there's so many great people. And Bosley's even in this movie. So, you know, you're a Charlie's Angels fan. You've got it all. So if we want to start. Uh, we're going to kick off. Uh, it opens up with, like we said, the sunrise at NASA. Three astronauts are headed to their capsule. Their wives are there in the control room. Everybody, and I love the fact it was a 70s NASA control room, so everybody's smoking. You know, they've all got their jackets and ties on. And uh, here comes the countdown. And three minutes before, it's time for them to lift off. This solitary, suited guy walks up to them and says, Gentlemen, I need you to come with me. No ifs, ands, or buts. Get out of the capsule. Let's go. And they do. And if you listen in the background, the countdown is still going on, and the interaction between James Brolin's character uh, as Colonel Brubaker is talking back. But it's not him because he's walking away. And so as the countdown goes, they, they go down. They, they get first into a van. The van takes them to a helicopter. The helicopter takes them to a private jet. And then the private jet takes off as the spaceship is rocketing off, quote unquote, to Mars. Right. And, you know, the crazy thing about everything you just threw down, this all happens in the first 10 minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. It is crazy. And you've got that smooth, smooth voice of the mission control guy who I don't know if you know if you kind of caught it but that guy's voice is just so perfect for this role and um throughout the whole thing I just can't wait he talks about you know what mission day it is and uh, anyway I'm, I'm sorry I'm jumping around though uh, <laughs> I can't say I paid much attention to his voice, though. Anytime I hear about mission control and everything, I immediately jump into Stargate in my head, and I'm listening to Gary Jones' voice. Uh, He's counting the chevrons down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it was funny is the guy, the mission control guy's name is Paul, and the actor's name is Paul. That so works. Yeah, and I noticed far. that with some other names here. Like, there's a character named Elliot. But he's not played by Elliot Gould, but his friend no. in there is Elliot Gould. So Elliot Gould's having to say Elliot the whole time. <laughs> but, you know, something that I want to touch base on is something I've already said before. But, again, so much happens in the first ten minutes. And this was something that I expected to happen about halfway through the film. Like, right. I thought we were going to be in the daily lives of these astronauts. We were going to be counting down 
days, if not weeks, until the shuttle was supposed to launch. And like you said, here we go. It's 30 minutes till lunchtime. And I was like, wait, is this like, this is starting just like this? And then whenever I saw them open up the hatch and say, hey, there's an emergency. We need you to evacuate. And of course, the astronauts are looking around at each other. and Nothing like this has ever happened. And like you said, I mean, we just landed on the moon not too long ago. And now here we are. We are the first manned mission attempt to go to Mars. And so immediately they're being ejected out of their seats, something that they've been training their whole lives to do, and they have no idea what's going on. And like you said, the world is sitting there watching an empty spaceship launch into space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of my favorite exchanges happens right before the launch. So you've got the vice president, and and you start to pick up with their interactions. Vice President Price who is played by James Karen, uh, best known from Return of the Living Dead 1 and 2, comes and sits down next to a senator who you can tell it's kind of like this must be his project, Senator Hollis Peaker. And they have the most cordial exchange back and forth. And you can just tell, and they do say it later, under their breath they're like, you, you a-hole, you know? And it's, it's perfect bureaucracy shown on the screen. And I just love that little interaction. So they get off the plane, and the three of them are led to a room where they sit by themselves trying to figure out what's going on. And finally, we get to see Hal Holbrook as Dr. Kellaway, who was in Mission Control, finally comes in. And he starts right away with the, how long have we known each other, Brew? And lays it down so that we get the idea that they've known each other for a long time, 16 years. And... He's really playing. I, I thought actually a little bit too heavy, but I, but I understand what he was doing. And basically, finally comes down and says, "Listen, we figured out because we built this spaceship using using the lowest bidders that you guys would be dead in three weeks because the life support system wouldn't work." And they pulled him out. And so there you have now the as he walks him through first the the control room and then out into the set that they are now going to pull off one of the, the greatest illusions that man has ever known. They are going to broadcast from that studio for months that the trip would take and never tell anybody. And our astronauts, they're not having much of that. I remember the first time I watched this, I was just really blown away with the storyline. I thought I was really brave. Like, it was making a statement about the lunar landing. And then the second time I watched it, I started to pay attention more to some of the dialogue. And it made me want to ask you a certain question. I don't think, I don't know to what extent they touch base on certain points of this, but we're going to get into something later that happens with the ship. It's not exactly the same thing that they're talking about on here. So it made me wonder, one, do you think he's telling the truth? Like, do you think the life support system would have failed? Or do you think I they did. were just going to roll with the punches on it and just fake the whole thing just so it would be done right? I do think just from just from hearing, and like I said, I, I understood what Callaway was doing by, by relying so heavily on his past relationships. There's actually this cool little thing where there's a photo in his office of him and Brew, like, fishing somewhere. And then later on, you see that exact same picture in Brubaker's home. 
So you know that there was a deep connection between them. But yeah, I, I really do believe that, you know, two months before the launch, they figured out that three weeks in, they would all be dead. And this was like one of those Hail Marys, what are we going to do? And he, he was just so invested in it that there was no going back. And in this scene, when he's explaining to them why he's doing it, he says that if I if there was any other option, I would take it. Like, if, if I could be doing anything else right now, we would be doing that. Because the last thing I want to do is have to pull you guys from doing this. And basically what we're discovering is, like Jamie said, you know, we're now on... It's, it almost looks like an abandoned TV studio set that they had set up in this huge empty warehouse. And when you first look at it, you go, hey, that looks like Mars. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then there over here is the, the orbiter and, and so that they can film in there. And, you know, they've got the whole scene over there where they can jump down. And it's it's perfect. It, it, if they fake the moon landing, that's what it would have looked like. Kellaway then starts talking about the elusive they. They are not going to let this fail. And then he throws down that card of you have to realize all your families are together on a plane right now and they have a device on there and they are going to blow it if they don't get a phone call from me saying we're going ahead. And man, that puts them in a spot. They have to do it. Yeah, things get personal really quick. And even though the astronauts operate as a team, when you get personal and you bring someone's family into here, you become three individuals and you can see everybody's reactions. And with every group, there's always one person who's going to be ornery and stand out and kind of be a, a stick in the mud about some things. And that's going to be our main character. The funny thing, too, is uh, our other character played by Sam, was it? Uh, Watterson. Watterson. Yeah, Peter Willis. <laughs> he... um. He's the jokester, man. Uh, you mentioned earlier a scene where he's telling a joke. He's telling jokes throughout the whole movie. Yeah, he gets the best, almost every of the best line in this this film. Sam Watterson's got. Um, <laughs> you know, he uh, he is something else, and it's funny to see the characters that he played on um, Law and Order for so many years. How serious he was compared to this character. Um, but he constantly had me laughing. So at that point, we, we break back to the Brubaker's house. And so it's it's been a little while after, the, but there's still some TV crews set up. And this is where we get introduced to Robert Scoop Caulfield, played by Elliot Gould, and Judy Drinkwater, as <laughs> played by Karen Black. And we find that they're both intrepid reporters. Judy works for a network, and he works for a newspaper. And... This is just a very small scene to set up that they have some history together. And she's got a very, not abrasive, but she's got her guard up and she knows what he's after. And so there's, there's that back and forth. And, and then we, we, you know, we quickly move on. Now we're going to jump. And I love the fact, I'm sure you saw it where they would put the title cards up and they would tell you what day it was. Yes. And then, and then Paul Haney, the, the voice of NASA would come on and tell you how many days into the mission it was. And at this point, we were first introduced to Elliot Witter and Elliot is one of the guys on the telemetry panel and he's figuring out something's weird. And so you've got one signal that's coming to them that's coming from the spaceship. And then you've got another signal that's coming to them, which is the television signal. And he's looked and he's done a little checking and something's not right. These signals aren't coming from the same location. As a matter of fact, the television one 
seems to be a lot closer. So he brings it to his boss, and the boss is like, oh, okay, well, great. Well, thank you, you know, for doing that. Uh, we'll have the panel looked at, and we'll appreciate you. And Ellie kind of turns around, and he's just not too happy with that. So he goes home that night with all of his work, and he crunches his numbers. And uh, this is when we get to see a really good establishing shot of Elliot's apartment. Oh, love it. Which is, yeah, and it's going to oh. come back in later on. You know? It is, and you know what? We also get to see more shots of people smoking cigarettes. Yeah. We don't Everybody promote that, but in the 70s, in yeah. <laughs> so we jump ahead a little bit further. Uh, now we're in May, and they're, uh, the wives are back at Mission Control, and they're getting ready. They're going to end up landing on the Mars pretty quick. And Elliot, again, knows in his gut something is wrong. And he goes and takes his findings to Dr. Kellaway. And he says, yeah, I told my boss. And Kellaway very calmly says, well, what console are you working on? And he's like, I'm console 36, you know, I'm on telemetry. And he gives him this, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. You, you know, your boss told me about that. We had it fixed. Well, we'll take it out and uh, replace it. And I thank you for bringing this to, us, uh, to our attention. And again, he walks away with that feeling that it's just not right. And also we got to make note that each time when he's telling his boss about it, he's saying, you know, I, I ran a self check. I did it myself. And it shoots up a red flag because anybody at work who takes the initiative to do something like that usually gets praised in their effort. Right. But every time he's like, I took it upon myself to do a separate check. The boss man just kind of looks at him like, Really? And, you, and we know as a viewer, like, oh, you were digging a hole, bro. Yep, yep, he does. So, yeah, he's thinking he's doing a good deed, but actually he's uh, he's going to pay for that later on. And this is the one part of the movie that I had a real head-scratcher. Because the voice of Mission Control talks about the fact that a time delay between them and the people in Mars would make it impossible to have a conversation, and therefore they've brought a recorded message from the president. And I'm like, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. But right after they finish saying that, they have a conversation with them <laughs> as they land on Mars and as he's got his camera up and as he's walking down the ladder. And the second time I watched it, I watched it two more times, that scene, and I sat with Tina, and I said, "Tina, is this right?" <laughs> and she agrees with me. Yeah, that you know he's saying it, and then right after. So that's the only little technical flub that I could really find with the movie. Mm. Uh, but I love it so much, I never noticed it until this time. I don't um, even think I looked deep into that right away. I just took it with the flow. But you are a hundred percent right. Like <laughs> now that I think back about it, I remember verbatim that scene where it's announced, and you're like, "Oh." Okay, you know, and keep in mind the president wasn't even at the space shuttle launch. And so when they're telling me about a pre recorded from the president, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm sure he did that too. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So the wives are all there watching it as well. And then we get a cool little scene 
where you, you pop over to the senator talking to his friends and he say, you watch if that a-hole, the vice president, doesn't call me to congratulate us. And sure enough, the phone rings and it's the vice president. And I'm like, these two guys are just so great together. Yes. <laughs> they're not even the same scene and they're, they're great. But um, the thing I took away mostly from that scene is how eerie it was to hear the president's message and the way that they filmed it through the monitors and then pulled back and now you're in the studio and those words were so inspirational, but it was all BS. But it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so then we jump next to where Caulfield is playing uh, pool and lo and behold, Elliot shows up and we figure out they're friends. And they start talking about the bad days that they had. And Elliot, just as a buddy, relates his story about his jerk boss today. And as soon as the story's over, there's a phone call. And Scoops goes over and he goes to answer the phone, but they can't hear him and they're, they're a bad connection. Finally hangs up and goes back to the pool table and Elliot's gone. Oh, oh well, you know, you kind of guess whatever. I guess he got bummed and went home. And then... It switches on and, and moves on. You're like, oh, okay, well, whatever. One thing I want to say is I absolutely loved Elliot Gould's performance as a drunk Caulfield. Just the verbatim, the dialogue in between, I compare it with some of the greats of a classic movie, You know, especially for that time period where it's just like, I'm laughing when I'm thinking about it, but he's just like, come on, I'll play a game. Five bucks. And he's like, no. He's like, ah, ten bucks. He's like, no, come on. He's like, I'll let you break. Are you drunk? Of course I'm drunk. I said I'd let you break. <laughs> and, just like, and then as they're exchanging information, he's like, hold on, I'm beginning to sober up. What did you say? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it well is. Written. And it's cool because later in the film, they actually talk about famous exchanges from movies and how actors talk to each other in a movie. And years later, this is a movie that you look back on and see, man, they had some great exchanges. The irony. So, yes. yeah, is you know. So the next scene is actually one of my personal favorites. James B. Sickings got his big role because flashing back to the astronauts, Brubaker has decided this is it. And he has a come to Jesus meeting with the other two astronauts and says, I'm telling everybody when we're on our video feed with our with our wives, I'm letting the world know. And so he. Sicking picks up the phone and he calls Dr. Kellogg and says, I don't trust him. I think, you know, it's going to go south. And Kellogg says, I can, I can handle him. Just don't worry about it. And fades out. And then afterwards, you get a scene where Scoop is now actively looking for Elliot. He's calling, um, he, his phone's out of order and it's starting to kind of bug him. Man, what's, what's going on? I haven't heard from this guy in a while. Uh, and he just seems to have disappeared. And then we get this cool next card where it's now July 22nd. And it's the final TV transmission. This is the first time that they're close enough to hold a conversation. Or is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brewbreaker almost breaks. First one astronaut, then the second get to talk to their wives and tell them how much they love you. And then his wife reads a story that Charles Jr. wrote about how much of a hero his dad is. And he almost breaks down, but he doesn't. And to close up, he tells his wife, tell Charles Jr. that I'm going to take him back to Yosemite like we did last year. And there's this 
momentary look where she's confused, but she says, okay, I'll, I'll let him know. I'll tell you, man, some things I loved about this scene is whenever our other two astronauts go first, they're awesome. They pull it off. They're doing it for their family, and they're completely believable. Like, you can tell something's eating at them, but their wives just think it's the weight of the mission. Right. And then when we get to James Brolin's character, we're not sure what's going to happen. And the best part is, is NASA's not sure either. Right. And so we have people sitting there at mission control with a hand over the like kill the feed button. And right. then you have other people on the phone who's like, wait for it. Don't push it until I say like there are 99 percent sure that he is going to blow the whole thing. And right. I, as a viewer, got to a point where I wasn't really sure if he was or not. Yeah. You just don't know. You just didn't know. But in the end, he pulled back and didn't say anything. No, oh, man, he pulled the or did route. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that scene now goes to Caulfield. Has Okay, I'm going to go back to Elliot's apartment because I've been there. I know I've known him for years. And we know what that apartment looks like. And he knocks on the door and a woman comes to the door. And he says, well, this is my friend Elliot. So, no, this is mine. And finally, the, she's got a good line there at the end. She says, listen, mister, I'm cleaning an oven. I'm cleaning my oven, which is in my kitchen, which is in my apartment. <laughs> and he goes in, and of course, it's completely different. And there's mail there. Mrs. Alva Leacock uh, in Houston, Texas. So Elliot has just been wiped from the face of the earth. Right. And like yeah. we said, I mean, when he was trying to get a hold of his buddy, he couldn't do it. And he had the operator verify that the number was literally out of order. And now he shows up, and this is something this movie does on multiple occasions, which I really love, and I think it was a very smart decision by the director, and that was to put it right in front of our face, let us walk away, and then let us approach the scene again, and now we have experience. So like you said, there was a scene earlier where we saw the apartment, and we were like, I mean, it could have been a throwaway scene for all we know, but now it's validated when we get to see the apartment a second time, and I'm going to make this reference again at least one more time with a scene where I felt the same way. Yeah, yeah. And and, and again, it, it hammers home, something's not right. So he, he leaves, and he goes down, and he gets into his Mustang. And this is a scene which, again, watching, uh, so many times you see people that the brakes are out or something is going on, and they just panic. So as he's driving away, his car starts speeding up, and he, the brakes don't work. So he pulls the parking brake, which doesn't work. So then he tries to throw the car into park and into any other gear, and that doesn't work. And he even turns the car off and pulls the, the key out. Yes. And that that really, to me, said a lot about the director, that he's not just you know being an idiot. He's, he's did everything he should have done to stop that car. And so it goes in later on to show that he's not crazy. They are out to get him. Jamie, I got to be honest with you, man. I've seen this movie, I think, three times now. Maybe I'm two and a half. Maybe I'm right there with you with it. But this scene still, I struggle for the word, but I'm going to say terrifies me because it puts me on the edge of my seat, and it is filmed so well and edited together so flawlessly that it terrifies me, man, because so many times you have the POV shots inside the car. Uh, then you have a quick snippet of the traffic around. And the car, it, everything that you said, plus the car is consistently going faster. Like, I don't know anything about cars, but I'm like, 
please tell me that's not possible. Like, that is terrifying. And, I mean, I don't know how long they took to do certain things. I don't know if you have any nuggets about that. But just, they created such a believable, catastrophic scene of what it would be like if your car went haywire and you couldn't control it, you couldn't stop, and it's just fleeing through. I mean, we've all seen movies where the car is going to go between the buildings and pass through the alley, and then you get across that one street, and everybody throws their arms up in front of their face, and everybody's like, oh. And this movie does it like 25 times in different situations. And each situation, it just gets more intense and more intense. And I got to say, even up until the ending point of this scene, I think I had to slow down my breathing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they slightly overclock the camera. So you get this feeling like it's frantic. Yes. And it was. And then, you, like you said, you see a snippet and he's going over 100 miles an hour in the city. You know, and this was actually in Long Beach, California. That was supposed to be the Houston area, but still he goes up and there, the bridge is out or being, it's a, it's a suspension bridge. So it's being pulled up and his car jumps off. And I don't know if you noticed, but when his car goes to hit, I think they actually overshot that a little bit, but because you could see the back of the car hit the support buttress on the other side. So I, I tried to find out if there was something that had happened there, but I, I didn't find anything. Uh, and, of course, luckily, Scoops is able to survive. That film actually was used in several TV shows afterwards. Um, it was used in The Fall Guy, and I think it was used on, like, a, The A-Team or something. Um, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you, I was surprised – that that wasn't the end of our character because I thought he, man, after he escaped so many certain things, I was like, well, something's bound to happen. Like, this is building up to some, some point. And when we see the bridge lift up, I was like, oh, oh, he's going to go out like that. Mm-hmm. And then when it pivoted into the water, you know, I'm terrified because I'm like, I hate water. I think I'd rather have been in the crash, but don't take my word for it. <laughs> but, man, I was really relieved. And when he survived that, I was like he's going to survive this whole movie. Like that just did it for me. This guy's a survivor. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And, uh, I, I was surprised cause I'd forgotten that they show him climbing out of the water afterwards, but, uh, whew, that was yeah. scary. That was scary. So we now jump to September 19th, uh, plus 259 days into the mission. Um, they're getting ready to come home. And, the they they talk about the fact that the USS Oronoski is going to be the recovery vessel, and I say that that's kind of neat because I, I noticed while I was watching it that the planes didn't quite look like they were the right era. And looking it up, sure enough, that was actually a shot from a different movie of the Oronoski, but from 1954. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. that's what it was, you know, and it was these Korean War era um, F9F Panthers that were on the decks. So I was like, ah, there you go. <laughs> you pat, patted myself on the back a little bit. All of our history buffs out there are applauding you well. Yep, yep. And actually, William Holden was in that movie. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so – they're, the astronauts, they are ready because this is it. They're going to be taken out. They're going to be flown to an island, and then they're going to be taken to a boat where they have predetermined that the ship is going to come out of the range of where it normally was when it splashes down, 
and the recovery ship will show up and pull the three of them out and nobody will be the wiser. So they get on the plane and they're headed off to the ship. At that time, we switch back to the mission control. Everybody's either watching it on TV or there in the room. You know, one of the guys notices, oh, I noticed the ship's going to be off. Well, that's all part of Kellaway's plan, but he doesn't let it know. You know, anybody knows. He's like, well, just keep me, you know, on the loop. And then the unthinkable happens. Sensors start going off. That bright red light that says heat shield separates. And everybody starts panicking, starts running around, checking things. And one by one, the monitors on the ship for all three astronauts flatlines hmm. and everybody's dead it's a powerful scene man it really is and because you've got the the wives all together and she she miss brubaker has kind of a test the kids to go go upstairs because they know something's hmm. wrong and this is a great scene because the jet turns back around and lands and they get put back into that same room they were in many months ago when they were first brought on at the same time, Kellaway is going into the room full of reporters to tell them what happened. And it's, again, great shots. It goes back and forth between the room and the reporters and Brubaker figures out one of two things had to happen. Either the heat shield separated and we're dead or the capsule didn't deploy the parachutes and we're dead. dead. Yeah. And, and, and again, Sam Watterson's got one of the best lines in the movie right then. He's like, shit, I was such a terrific guy. <laughs> this whole movie. Uh, love it. Yeah. So I love the fact, um, again, that these guys are smart. And Brubaker takes his St. Christopher medal off and uses it to pop the pins out of the door hinges so they can get off. But I'm guessing he doesn't put that Christopher Metal back on because it becomes an important factor later. Yes. So they take off and overcome the guard and steal the jet. And then you have that harrowing scene where OJ is trying to pull the door up so that they can take off. And all the the government cars are blocking it. And, you know, are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? And they do make it. And that's a powerful scene because it pushes the cars from the exhaust of the jets back. But then you realize it was also because the landing gear hit one of the cars. Yes. And it's broken off. And you well, know what? You what? know what, Jamie? That's still the least of our worries, isn't it? Least of the worries. They think they're all good. They get up. Let's look around us to see where we're going. And almost right away, fuel gauge starts going off. They're out of gas. It blows my mind, too, because... They barely had enough gas to make it back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, they were never <laughs> going to fly that plane again, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and so they have to do what they have to do, and they're all pilots. So Brew ends up making a landing, and a pretty good landing, too, out in the desert. And this is uh, this is a scene where it really starts to ramp up. From here on out, there's not much time to, hold, to, to catch your breath. Um, so you've got the three of them there. I want to say that uh, Brew goes and takes and opens up the uh, the emergency supplies, and there's you know there's water, canned water, which he gives each one of them, a flare, which is going to become important later. Use that if you can't make it any further, you get captured, and uh, a gun, 
that nobody else wants. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. another great scene. He tries to give it to um, to, to Sam Watterson, and he's like, no, I'd probably just shoot myself. And then he tries to give it to OJ, and he's like, no, I'd probably just shoot him. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my God, this is so great. Yes. So he sticks it in his pocket. The interesting thing about this scene right here is it was originally filmed where there's three packs of cigarettes, which harkens back to World War II times where those survival kits had cigarettes in them. But, you know, times have changed, and so that part has been cut out now. Mm. So you don't see it. So then that's when they decide, okay, well, the only way to go is we've got to split up. And they decide that Brubaker is going to continue on west, which was their current heading. Walker is going to go north, and Willis is going to go south. And they basically say, I'll see you when we see you. And they all take off in three different directions. And that's another powerful scene. Yes. You know, very much so. It's it's closed in on them as they're shaking hands and kind of, you know, doing that brotherly thing. And then as they all start to walk their separate ways, it pans out and it shows, it's like, it's sympathetic because it shows them walking away from each other, all in search of one common destination, one common goal. But then you also see the vast, just like how big the desert is and what obstacle they have in front of them. Yeah. It's almost like the point where, you know, at this point that, that just by the odds, two of them are probably not going to make it. Yeah, you know? I felt the same way. It, it's kind of heart-wrenching in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then we split back, and Caulfield is going over the footage from when they had their last video conversation. And he keeps going back to that point where she says where, – where he says, I'm going to take Charles Jr. to Yosemite, and she's confused. And then it flips to a beautiful scene with Brubaker's wife and two kids together as she reads Fox and Socks, which if you watch the movie at the end, they actually thank Dr. Seuss for letting him use that book. And I thought it was such a, a, a powerful scene where she's, she's alone, you know, and then it harkens back to her husband who's also alone. Right. Oh, it's just, it was really great. So I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to throw a tidbit in there. Yeah. I want it to take away from the powerful scene, but you want to talk about something else powerful. One of my greatest memories from my childhood was when my aunt used to read to me a Dr. Seuss book. Oh, green eggs and ham man all day. And to this day, she still has that exact same book. That's awesome. That's a great memory. Yes, it is. Hold, hold on to that. Wow. Give it a few years and she would have been reading me horror, but hey, same aunt. <laughs> So at this point, we now bring these two characters together because Caulfield goes to see Brew's wife. And again, you want to talk about some amazing dialogue, the way that that she lays out what he's about to say. And then he turns around and says exactly what she said he was going to say. It's amazing. And and she tells him about, well, you know, that whole reason I was confused was because we didn't go to Yosemite. We went to Flat Rock. And okay, all right. Well, this is something. Thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna go and and then it jumps right back to the first time we get to see probably the biggest villain of the entire movie, and that's the Choppers, oh, the yes. Hughes OH6 Cayuse, dark green and black, equipped with. I mean, these things are as much of a character in this film as any human is. 
the way that they fly into each other and they almost look like they're talking, which, you know, the humans inside are talking to each other and they're looking over the plane and they watching again last night. They were like insects. Yes. You know, it was almost like they had a hive mind. I think that was the entire purpose is to give them characteristics and traits because there is a scene when, and we're going to get to it, but the helicopters literally turn, like, for no reason. I mean, this is not (laughs) anything logical, but they turn and look at each other as if communicating and then turn back. And Jamie, at that point, I was nervous as hell because the propellers get so close to each other. Yes, yes. But I did figure out how they did that last night and watching it is because if you look really close, one is closer to the camera than the other is because their heights are, because they're, they're perfectly lined up. You know, it's, it's amazing what these pilots were able to do. The back one's a little bit smaller and it may be, it may be literally kind of go, Oh, okay. (laughs) Don't ruin this for me. They were close together. (laughs) (laughs) It really, it made me like breathe out because I thought, Oh crap, they're so close together. But uh, and you could take that part out if you want. <laughs> no, you're great, man. They gave, they did the Godzilla trick. It's okay. And if they I ruin did. that for anybody else, I'm sorry. Godzilla, <laughs> it, you know, those buildings aren't really. <laughs> what? They, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I know. I, well, this is the podcast from another world. It's also the spoiler from another world. Ah. So then we jump back and Caulfield goes to Flat Rock, which is basically um, a fake Western town that you can go to and sometimes – they use it to film stuff, and he's just kind of looking around. He's not there five minutes. Somebody starts taking shots at it. Yeah. No, and you're like, oh, okay. This guy is getting so close, and you you could feel it. They're so after him. Yeah, and these hired killers are terrible. They're terrible. They are. He is not. They take two shots and then they take off. There's nobody else there. Right. You know, Just walk up to him, done, man. Pop a captain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so then we go back to the choppers, and this is such a great little plot point: is they're flying around, and all you can see is the sand, and it. They fly over, and after they're gone, the the sand starts shifting, and Brubaker rises up out of it, oh. and you're like, oh. Dude, that guy is so smart. You so know? apocalypse now, you know, like uh-huh. I was wa- for a second, literally a split second, I was thinking they were lingering on this scene too long. Like, ah, he should have cut that sooner. And then it, I started to pick up on it. And whenever we seen him move, I was just like, you're so Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Rambo. So Brubaker. That's it. I like <laughs> it. And that's my bumper sticker. Here we go. Let's go. And then we see an important thing as he starts to leave. He's left the gun. The unknown. So you know, so then we we jump back, and we see Doctor Kellaway goes to see Brew's wife, and tries to convince her to come to the memorial. And at first, she doesn't want to go, but as he's walking away, okay, she she concedes, yes, I'll go. And that's the first time in that movie that I ever got a greasy feeling off of him. Man, took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, this is when he let his true colors fly. And this is when, if anything else, he became the villain. Yes, exactly. You're so dead on right there. Because after that, everything he does is just tainted. And it's Mm cold-faced. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's what kind of makes it. It doesn't ever seem like after they have to be quote-unquote killed he never looks back no no who's got his family hostage now you know exactly Jeez. exactly and this is the scene where afterwards where you see the photo uh in on, on the wall there yep. so 
it's tying together that there used to be something and now he's he's squelched it and, and it makes you even wonder who they really were you know if they were actually part Kellaway was part of it and he right. was just playing them all along so at this point after leaving the Brubaker's house we first go to Walker who was the OJ Simpson character and I loved the makeup that they did on him I mean he looked like dried up leather yeah. and he's already kind of a little in his head. He's talking to himself. He's telling his wife, I guess, you know, how thirsty he is. And then he falls down into what he figures out is a riverbed, a dry riverbed. So he's no baby. So he takes out part of his little uh, kit and starts digging, but he can't find any water. And then he looks up and, this is such a great scene. Yes. He looks up and sees two birds circling toward him and they're, they're waving in the heat and then it comes into focus and they're not, they are birds, <laughs> but they're whirly birds. Yeah. They're not birds that are hunting for water. They are helicopters that are hunting for people. Yeah. And, and I, I just, he reaches in and just so calmly takes his flare and shoots it off. Man, when that scene happened, Jamie, it was so... Like, you called it powerful earlier. It is powerful. Like, what it does to your mind and your heart, when you see and hear the flare shoot in the air, it's a solo. It's the only thing that's going up, and we get to see point of view from each other astronauts, and you just... They're like, they got one of our brothers, you know? Yeah, and you know what I loved is that it goes off during the day. You know, it, it makes it even that more heartbreaking because you know you see a flare at night and oh it's pretty you know right this, this is the only thing this does is to tell you that this guy's gone whether right. it's by accident or by he's caught he's dead to them now right and they don't emphasize too much like we don't see anything violent but this scene sets it up so perfectly that you feel like you do man you just you know what happens yeah yeah. And you feel so bad for them. And they don't they don't take the pressure up either. They go straight from seeing Walker to seeing Willis walk up and just stare at a cliff that must be oh my god, I don't know how high that cliff was. It's like Mount Rushmore up there, it, man. It did. And you know, he he's just gonna okay, it's just something else in my way. <laughs> and this is where he starts to tell the joke. And <laughs> That's got to be one of the longest jokes I've ever heard. Oh, man. Because he slips and he scratches and he gets himself all the way to the top. And as soon as he puts his hand up to pull him up, he drops that, that punch line. And as he pulls his head over, both choppers are sitting there waiting for him. Did you notice that we know his character the whole time, but it fits so perfectly that when he reached the top of that cliff he almost had a sense of relief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't he, notice he, that. It's like he knew and he was almost relieved that he just didn't have to climb anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, you know, period. He doesn't have to climb or go through the desert anymore. No, you it's know? over. Oh, man. Was... And of course, what happens? A flare. Yeah. Yep. Another flare. And then so, so now Caulfield goes back and he sees his editor, which again, amazing uh, conversations between the two of them. And it's Bosley 
from you know and he's got he's got just such a a great it's david doyle was his name um the actor and so they have this conversation back and forth and there's this whole scene where he tells him that's it you can't do this crap anymore you got to go out and find a real story and they they talk about no you're supposed to tell me i've got 48 hours and if i don't come back with a story i'm fired and he's like, oh, yeah, well, uh, you got 24 hours to do it. <laughs> I love it. Um, I saw the same movie. You've got 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and it's cool because that's from The Long Goodbye from 1973. Oh, um, OK. Yeah. And so he, when he tells him, hey, you know, I saw that movie, too. And it was Jimmy Stewart, not Alan Hale from Call Northside 77. There's our connection. You know, exactly. Hey, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, we cannot get rid of that. Oh, we can't. And so so Caulfield promptly goes home. There's a great scene where he's going around brushing his teeth. He opens up the medicine cabinet, and there's only like two things in it. Closes it, and then all of a sudden, as he's walking back around, federal agents bust in. And all of these guys are suddenly all over the place. And... You know, they're, they're hey, uh, bring him in here. One of the agents grabs uh, Caulfield and walks him in. It opens up that same cabinet, and now there's a vial of cocaine. And this was the scene, Jamie. This was the other scene I was going to tell you about. Like, we saw the apartment earlier, and then we saw it again. And now I was, I found it interesting that the camera followed Caulfield around his apartment. We saw his empty bathroom, and he opens up the medicine cabinet. Like you said, there's there's two things in there, one upon which is a bottle of scope, you know, that yeah. he's mouthwashing from, which I guess the cigarettes got to him or whatever, because I don't, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I mouthwash, it's usually morning, um, night, or if I get up in the middle of the night, you know, something like that. But anyways, the whole point was to show this, that there couldn't have been anything in there before. And oh, and I, just, I love his reaction. He's like, yes. you're in on it. You're oh, in on he's it. He's so subtle. You're all in on it. Yes, and, and I did like the way that he played that because he didn't play it like a crazy person. No. He wasn't paranoid. He knew. He was playing they smart. Were, exactly. And he even edited himself because, he, you know, he could have said whatever he wanted. He's like, y'all are some mothers, you know that? <laughs> it's like, well, okay. Yeah, so, so they take him off to jail and <laughs> his editor could not be happier <laughs> to bail him <laughs> out. And he fires him on the spot. And so who else is Caulfield to go to? But drink water. Yep. So this calls back to they had a lot of history together. Not only does she pick him up and bring her home, bring him home, but she gives him his car. She gives him all the money she has. And she's been doing research and has figured out where this quote unquote signal could have been coming from. Right. And, you know, this is all he needs. He's got a mission now. He jumps in his car and he takes off toward this unknown spot within 300 miles. 300 miles. I mean, that's a heck of a drive. Just to, well, all right, let's go. <laughs> exactly. But, Jamie, we can't skip the one part. When he gets back, they're going to jump each other's bones. Yes, right, right. That, I'm was, gonna that was made very <laughs> clear. <laughs> yes. And I, I, I would, you know, Karen Allen's pretty hot back then, you know? Karen Black? I, yeah, Karen Black. Thank you. Karen yeah, Black. I mean, you're hot. not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Both, actually. You know? <laughs> yeah. I've seen that movie. No, wait, what? Okay, moving on. So after driving all night, Caulfield has to get to the base. And Brubaker finally finds a little bit of respite because the helicopters are circling all around him. And he he wakes himself into a little cave, but he's not alone in that cave. He's got a terrifying scene. Mm -hmm. He ends up killing the the, he doesn't have his gun because he lost it. 
So he ends up wrapping something around his hand and getting the rattlesnake to take after it and smashes him with a rock. Mm. And then he splits it open and eats the raw snake. Just going to show that you don't kill animals for fun. That's it right. It was food. And it probably became his belt. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, in the, the trivia, there was actually cooked fish inside the snake that well, he thank ate. goodness. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> I, did, I don't know, man. I wasn't grossed out by it. It takes a lot to gross me out. But I will say, it, the snake did not look appetizing whatsoever. No, but you could tell he played it off well. He was like, okay, this is going to sustain me. Hey, maybe he hates fish. Hey, maybe so. Maybe that's what, hey, what do you hate? Put fish in there. You'll get my reaction. Okay. So, Jamie, let me pause right there. What food do you hate? What could they have put in there that would have made you gag oh. outside of it being an actual snake? Uh, okay. So the worst food that I can think of is uh, a Thai or Vietnamese dish that's called chicken fingers. <laughs> okay. Because it is actually the foot of a chicken that has been prepared and it's cut off above the ankle and it has a little bit of meat still on it and they serve it to you and you eat it like buffalo wings where you stick mm. it in your mouth and you chew the stuff out and then every once in a while you have to spit out a nail and I got a whole story to tell you about that one day that's awful and wh- what they call it chicken toes? I'm just saying. I don't know. I don't oh. know. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to all of our listeners out there. I didn't see that coming. That's gross. <laughs> what about you? What's your Oh, my answer food? is much easier. Onions, bro. Onions? I know the, I know the world loves uh, onions and peppers and all those fancy, colorful things. But, man, you know what? If you put onions on a dish, I'm going to hate on it the whole time. And they could have been just had me bite into an onion, and I would have cried. I would have gagged. It would have been game over. Wow. Cooked or raw. I don't all care. Right. So not to get too far off, what's your feelings about cilantro? Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, we're talking like chips and salsa and there's cilantro in it. I could usually get away with it. And, and there's always an exception to every rule, but I'm more so saying like chop, you know, sliced up onions, biting into an onion, something like that. If you can trick me and I taste the onion, no big deal. So I guess cilantro just depends. Cilantro is the devil weed. That's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag double weed. Hashtag double weed. There's actually a whole Facebook page <laughs> that I'm a member of called I Hate Cilantro. <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's, it's crazy. <sighs> uh, T. Jen, who I did the shark show with, yes. she makes an amazing salsa, and then she makes me a little bitty one with no cilantro in it. I love her. Thank you, T. Jen. Love you. Um, <laughs> is, is, she, is she local to you? Oh, yeah. She's just down the street. Uh, okay. Tina... Uh, Super Gus and Jennifer all worked together at a Walden Books like 20 years nice. ago. I and remember Walden Books. Yeah. Yep. They're still, I actually worked there before any of them did. All right. Well, if she happens to hear this episode, I don't know if she listens to my podcast. She might because you're on she this will. episode. She will. But um, shout out because that shark episode was awesome. I remember, I, it, you correct me, I got right back to you as soon as I you heard did. it. You did. And was like, that was a great episode. And you've had the best guest ever for that topic. But yeah. I will say, we've talked about this. I'm going to visit you one day. This is what I do. I do uh-huh. visit my friends. But when I do, I want to try some of this salsa. Oh, you're down, man. I'm you're down. down. Her husband, Lo, who's done the the fave food, he is an amazing cook. There and it is. so if you come down, we're going to fill your belly. That's for sure. Oh, consider it done. <laughs> done. <Just laughs> let the virus think pass over. But if we can keep the 
ticket prices down. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah, I'll pick you up. Oof, done. <laughs> so, uh, what movie were we talking about again? Uh, the one where Rambo eats an onion snake. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, Caulfield shows up at the base, and it's abandoned. But the first thing that struck me is he goes into the base, and he goes into the what was the stu- studio set, and he flips on all the lights. Yes. You know, and so my first thought is, is that is that supposed to be there as a clue? Because if it was an abandoned place, there would be no electricity. Right. So I'm thinking that that's laid there. That wasn't a, you know, a, a fub that was supposed to be there. And then as you walk around and you see some of the dust left and whatnot, and in a pile of dust, he reaches down and pulls out St. Christopher metal. Yes. Yeah, so then he knows, because he flips it over and sees the the engraving, he knows he's alive and he's been there. And so now it's a rush to find him. Right, and you know, you talked about, real quick, how it stood out to you, like, wait, there's electricity there? I'll even do you one. You know what the first thing that came to me was? What's that? I mean, like, it, it wasn't locked. Like, True. Like, walked right in. I, I thought he was going to have to break into this place. I mean, I don't even Very know if it's abandoned. Point. It would have been shut down. But he, he struts right in. I remember thinking, well, that was easy. <laughs> yeah, on a nice oil door, too, probably. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's a great that's a great pick. I missed that. Um, so then we, we switch back to the owner of that St. Christopher medal, Brew, who is walking through a dust storm and ends up laying down and just covering himself up. And, you know, you, you get this feeling, has he quit? You know, it feels like he's given up almost. So when the sun is up the next day, we again find Caulfield trying to figure out how to find his friend. And he goes to what is we find out is A&A crop dusting. <laughs> and Telly Savalas uh. <laughs> is so amazing that whole scene of can you guess which AI am up there? <laughs> so that's, how much it'll cost? Twenty five bucks. Okay, it's a hundred. Why is it a hundred? Because you got money and farmers don't. Now it's one twenty five. <laughs> and he just looks at me. Why is it hundred twenty five? Because you were so quick to say yes to a hundred. <laughs> Best dialogue in the movie. So awesome. Yes. So. And I love the fact that he, he keeps calling him a pervert. <laughs> Everybody's pervert. <laughs> so we switch back to Brew, who wakes up with a scorpion on his face Ugh, yep. that is right by his eye, too. You know, that was freaky. And so he stands up throwing everything off, and he turns and looks, and a hundred feet from him is what looks like an abandoned uh, gas station. And I'm thinking, crap, it must have been, you know, a big sandstorm to not have seen that. Right. Um, and, dude, I talked about the traffic scene and, and the car going crazy in the edge of my seat. Same thing, man. I mean, the, the rattlesnake a little bit, you know, but yeah. the scorpion, I mean, mm-hmm. do you know, I actually, I was almost attacked by a scorpion once. No, really? It was the weirdest thing ever. I was in a client's kitchen doing some work and I was having to kneel down on the floor and we were out in the country, man. Uh-huh. And I live here in Texas and we have plenty of country. And I swear, I looked over and saw a scorpion and I thought, ho, oh, and it came running at me. That client what? came in, that client, big boot, stepped on it <laughs> like it was a dang cockroach as if they have them all the time. They're like, scorpions. Yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking, what do you mean scorpions? I ain't getting on the floor no more here. But man, so when I saw this, yes, reminiscent of that bad time. But two, 
I don't know how they do some of these things, man, but that's terrifying. That that was no CGI scorpion. No, it was not. That was a scorpion all on his face. <laughs> oh, crap. So he makes his way over to the station, and first thing he does is find the water. Uh, and I see him splashing it all over his face and everything. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a water hose right behind him. <laughs> and I'm thinking... <laughs> Don't drink the water they've been washing the tires with. Just get some water here. But, I mean, the guy just came out of the desert. I'm not going to do it. And he breaks into the station and breaks into that beautiful Coke machine. Oh, love that. Oh, Antique collector right here. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then tries to call his wife. But, of course, they've already left for the funeral. Yes. He doesn't know that. But you can really see it. Like, it crushes him. And so, as Caulfield and... Albane are flying around in that red crop duster, that beautiful, beautiful crop duster, a Boeing Stearman Model 75 biplane. They see the two choppers and they're like, we're going to follow them. That's not right. And I think even Albane says something like, yeah, I've been seeing them fly around for the last couple of days. So, you know, that's the guy. They know something's up. So they follow him, them to that station and he's able to get away from them right when Albane and them fly down in front of the station in enough time to look at him and like, come on, come on. And you can see that moment of hesitation of, holy hell, who are these guys? You know, <laughs> and all I can assume is he's like, OK, they don't have guns. But right. These guys do. They're so not I'm the ones that them. have been trying to kill me. So, yeah. <laughs> and then what follows next is one of the coolest airplane scenes this i mean it's a two helicopters versus a biplane with a guy hanging by his fingers on the wires of the uh, of the wing and oh man i mean geez this was an amazing shot and you got caulfield who won't put his damn head down yeah he won't put his (laughs) gd head down (laughs) i gotta say jamie and i'm gonna let you describe it here in a second this, on the first watch, almost took me out of my element for the movie. This oh. was way too James Bondish. Yeah. It didn't match the rest of the movie for me. However, on the second watch, it blended perfectly. So I think it's it was expectation, you know, knowing what to expect. Uh-huh. And it, on the second part, I was much more believed into the scene. Uh, see, that's this is an ex- a great example of how we watch this movie differently. Because I grew up with those James Bond movies. Right. And I watch them now and I'm like, oh, man, you know, how did I like this so much? But you're right. This did feel. But the cool thing about this character is that he stayed true to his character the whole time through. You know, he was a weird guy. He was a weird guy from the first moment you see him. You know, in front of the plane until the very – and he's like, I want half of whatever you guys – what do you mean half? Well, you obviously have got some loot. That's why they're out looking for him. Yep. You know, and, and, and Caulfield's just like, yeah, okay, sure, you take half. You know? And it's so awesomely convenient that he took that money from Karen Black because here's where it went. Exactly. Exactly. All – like, again, the script, Hyman did a great job of laying it all out. Yes. And so then we start seeing – you know, these choppers, they start hitting on top of the plane. And and, you know, and so they pull the, the, the sneakiest trick. They get in front of the choppers. He has, uh, Albane has Caulfield pull the crop dusting. And all of a sudden, all of the stuff starts coming out. 
He flies right toward a cliff and then pulls up and both choppers. Boom. Boom. Oh, man. That was awesome. That scene is another scene that was used in 80s TV. I remember seeing that one on uh, the A-Team. At one, oh, no doubt. You yeah. know? At any point, did you find it crazy that they didn't just shoot down the plane? I did. And I felt like they didn't shoot at all, almost. You heard a little bit as soon as they took off. Right. But it's like, what? The whole point was to kill them. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's your chance, right? I mean, yeah. those helicopters, uh, I know you keep spitting out the terminology, but to me, they're just helicopters. They, yeah. they could have <laughs> definitely outmaneuvered that plane. But you know what? I was sold on the character and I was sold on the scene, especially the second time around where it's just a lot of fun. And yeah, man, I mean, you get crop dusted. There's no way out. There's no way out, you there's know? Nothing. And that was that was perfect. And I love the part at one, at one point where he comes in and he makes a complete barrel roll loop around the choppers. <laughs> Because aside from Airwolf, no helicopter could do that role. <laughs> right. And I, I think at and this Blue point. Thunder. Yeah, right. yeah, at this point, this is when I almost clocked out that first time because I was just like, there's no way he held on to that whole time. Exactly. Bullcrap. <laughs> <Like>, oh, <laughs> he like cut through his fingers all the way, you know? But you know what? If somebody was to argue the point, all they would have to say is. Or you're telling me the guy that survived in the desert, ate a snake, survived a scorpion, you know, did all these things, couldn't do that? And I'm like, well, I mean, I guess that just adds to how awesome he is. So maybe he could. Yeah, I guess some people like some people get to the end or the top of a uh, of a cliff and they're ready to give up. That's it. And some yeah. people get to the end and are about to fall off of a plane and they find that they can dig deeper and yeah. get something else. And, and that's what he was able to do. And then we, we come to the close, and everyone is at – and this time the president is there. He makes it his business to show up this time, mm. giving a moving speech to all of the, the widows, and oh, such a cool scene. And so you've got Caulfield pulling up with Brubaker in Drinkwater's car, that, that red – I think it was a mm. Datsun – and they get out, and one by one, people start looking back. And then there's this great scene where Brubaker's wife looks back, and she turns back around, and it's just – you can see she's just blown away. I can't believe yeah. that he's there and it's alive. And and I watched especially the scenes when they showed the senator and when they showed Dr. Kellaway. Yes. Because I was wondering – and neither of them gave anything away. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think Callaway, I don't even think he looked that upset. I think he was just like, okay, I've done everything I can. I, it, you know, he's, he's still alive. That's the point where he clocked out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I want to know, did the senator know about it? Right. Was he it, one of they? I don't know because there were so many times where I felt like he was kept in the dark. Yeah, yeah. That, but, that would have been a cool twist if he was part of it because he was so sanctimonious toward right. the vice president. Or even better, maybe, if the vice president was in on it and not the president. You know, just all kind of twists it could be. I love the visual of them running mm-hmm. side by side. Slow Slow motion. You got It's like classic 70s TV, right? I'm surprised they didn't use that for a TV show. These guys yeah. aren't in the movie. but um, yeah. A Jerry I, Goldsmith score just, oh, just ramping up. You know? Yes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this movie, aside from having the James B. Sicking and the Jerry Goldsmith connection, the lead man in the art department is a guy named Joe Longo. 
And you may not be familiar with him, but he was on the art department teams and then was the head of art for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and The Next Generation. And I actually have a they, – they made a set of cards about all the crew, and I actually have his autograph because I mailed Ooh. it to him. Yeah, I know. I'm fancy. You're telling me he didn't work on the Final Frontier? I do not believe he did. I only showed him as two and three, but but I'd have to double check. Oh, I'm only making the joke. He clocked out before they found God. So. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who doesn't know, Star Trek Five gets a lot of hate. I love the movie, so yeah, wait. Good. You mean he's your brother, brother? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then Michael Westmore was also there oh. as part of the uh, makeup department. See, that's a name I know. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows Michael Westmore, who's a Trekkie. Oh what? And he's so um, he's said so many things so i'm looking up uh let's see he was on deep uh, i'm sorry back to longo he did ds9 he did next gen uh he did search for spock so no it does not look like he did he checked out before they met god (laughs) (laughs) oh but man and that's it man that's the closing to the film you get all the reactions you get i feel bad for the other widows you know yeah Um, yeah but i love when you mentioned Brubaker's wife, uh, Kay's look, because mm-hmm. she does a double take. And to me, I think two things went through her head. One, it's my husband's not dead. And two, this whole thing is a sham. Who are they burying? Like, I think all that mm-hmm. hit her at one time. You're right. And just the slow motion scene of seeing our two heroes. I mean, there's several heroes, but you got to give it up to Brubaker and what? Caulfield. Run it together. Scoops just, for the win! I know, man. He was so great. And it's so funny, too, because... He's so young in this, man. Yeah. Yeah, doesn't even have the mustache, you know? Nope. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things I took away from this was, I wonder how the next day when he went back to pick up his <laughs> stuff from the office. Oh, 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 Scoops, hey, you know, I was just kidding with you, right? <laughs> oh, well, see, I'm laughing because that's true, but I'm thinking on the other side. Oh, okay, yeah. You just survived NASA? this NASA cover-up. I mean... I didn't think about this after the first watch, but after the second watch, my first thought was he just went through hell and high water. They're not going to leave him alone. Oh, like, no. This was, there's going to be more of this in his future, right? He's going to be in front no of so many day. subcommittees oh. and so many hearings. Oh, you my know. gosh. I and, mean, all I know, Jamie, I think a raise of hands, we're ready for Capricorn 2. Yes, sir. Let's right here. Right here. Peter's still I, making movies. Yeah, so, yeah. I want a car, too, though. Oh, i got to say. Uh, well, I mean, didn't they? Oh, well, I'm not going to go and read Yeah, they territory. did. Okay. So, I, but I, I purposely never watched it. Um, so this has been so much fun. I love this film, and I love talking about it with you. And with that being said, I got to say, you stole the show, and I am so proud because I love this movie. I knew I could run through it, but I had just as much fun listening to you run through it because it just shows the whole world just why you're the perfect guest uh, for this and how much of a huge fan you really are. I was. I told you I love this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is so when you when you put that list up, there was only one movie that I had to be on. And uh, this was it. And so I really appreciate you inviting me on and letting me. Let me talk. I hope I didn't hog it too much. Oh, man, it was perfect. And I hope the audience was engulfed in the conversation. I hope that we've convinced everybody to watch it. I got to say one thing, though, and this is something you've done for me consistently, is anytime I approach Jamie and say, hey, let's do a project together, because I'm going to get him on the show at least one more time for the years up, Jamie will figure out a way to get it done. And 
what I mean by that is this movie is not easily available. So you can't stream this on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or Tubi or any of those fantastic services. You can probably find it for a rental price, yes, but this is something that I went and bought, and this is something that you went and bought, even though you owned it, you got multiple copies just so you can dig deep into extra scenes about it. But man, I just, I love the amount of effort and passion that you put it into it, and it truly shines on this episode. Oh, thank you. Hey, Sip Brothers got to stay together, right? That's right. And speaking of that, I've been a guest on your show, uh, yes. maybe even three times coming up. We'll see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we got to talk about your show. I mentioned before you're the host of the Fave Five from Fans Podcast. Let's tell the world about it. Well, it's a fun little show that I started at the beginning of 2020 where I figure out the Venn diagram overlapping areas that a friend, whoever that friend may be, and I share interests in. And then I invite them to make a list of five or six or seven or eight or nine in some cases, things on that list. And then we sit down and compare those lists without knowing what's on the other person's. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's varied. Yeah, I never know what it's going to be like when I sit down with someone. There are some that I'm really into. And then there's some that I'm like, yeah, okay. And I find so much by listening to the others. Jennifer, perfect example. She was wonderful. Tomorrow's episode is a really fun episode. And the next week we've got one, our first literary episode where we talk about Edgar Allan Poe, which I don't know. You've probably heard of that guy, huh? Yeah. He may or may not be tattooed all over my legs. I probably may. (laughs) So yeah. So I'm really enjoying what we've been doing. We've got a bunch of shows, hopefully throughout this coronavirus, I'm going to keep coming out every Friday and throwing one in every now and again. There may be an episode with one of my favorite hosts on the 8th of May, and then he may show up again on the 22nd of May, but I'm not saying that for sure. Well, that guy sounds awesome. He is. (laughs) All right, Jamie, and for people to check out your show, tell them where they can find you. Well, you can find us on Twitter at... Fave, the number five from fans. And then everywhere else, it's all spelled out. Fave five from fans. We have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. And you could also download us from iTunes, from AOC, who hosts our uh, feed there. And those guys are wonderful. They're always very supportive. And when I mess it up, they fix it. (laughs) And uh, I would love if anybody's out there. Please go and visit, uh, download an episode, see what you think, rate it, tell me if it's good or tell me if it's bad. Tell your friends if it's good. Don't tell them if it's bad. Because I would love to have more people and more interactions. And if you could think of your Fave 5 list you'd like to hear, leave it a comment somewhere and we'll we'll try to do that for you. And Dave, there's about 10 more with your name on it. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on here and talking Capricorn One. And as always, we'll see you next time. Take care. This is Hulk Boy from Hollywood signing off.
And there you have it, Capricorn One. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and thank you so much for downloading it and checking it out. As you might notice, you know, the themes are changing up over here a little bit, and so so are some of the films that I'm going to do. Now, this one, it counts because it still had that sci-fi theme, but it also had the cool conspiracy theory thing, and it was like a thriller, and it's something Jamie really likes, and I was like, you know what, let's just do this movie. And with that being said... I am really excited about the next episode that I have coming out because usually I always kept it a secret, but you know what? I'm really excited because Brian from the Terrible Terror Podcast is going to come on the show and we are going to celebrate our Vincent Price theme that we do every year towards the end of May. And we're going to be talking about not only Vincent Price, but more specifically, The Tingler. So dipping a little bit back into the classic horror, and then I'm going to have two episodes in the month of June. We're going to do another adventure type film. And going to be doing the first trauma film on the podcast. So got a little bit of something for everybody. Got a little bit of adventure. Got a little bit of crazy horror. And as we get into the summer, got some big plans coming up. A lot of horror and some other cool stuff as we get into the horror season. But uh, I'll let you know more about that later. I want to take this opportunity to talk about the SIP network as the other guys have mentioned so many times on their podcast I needed to do the same thing here and the SIP network is simple sipping you know slightly irregular podcast that's what it is or the slightly irregular podcast network broken up between all of the guys that you listen to so if you listen to this podcast I hope you listen to their podcast and if you listen to their podcast I hope you listen to this podcast what podcast is that I'm so glad that you asked it's the angry dad podcast the paranormal pativity podcast obviously the terrible terror podcast which also means the podcast from another world but it also includes the Fave Five from Fans podcast, Dead Hand Radio podcast, From the Waste podcast, and of course, the Back in Time podcast. And speaking of the Back in Time podcast, check those guys out, man. They did an episode on Teen Wolf that was awesome. They recently did uh, Star Wars uh, Attack of the Clones, you know, the episode two episode that's awesome. And Kyle is going to be coming over and joining me for an episode in June. So a lot of love going on here, and it's just going to be a great year. I'm so excited, and uh, the stars are aligning, man, and we're just having a lot of fun. So if you enjoyed this episode, hit me up on Twitter, at Dave underscore Phantom. I love to talk to you, and I love to know if you have any requests or if just any input on the show, let me know. But if not, I'll catch you in two weeks. for listening to this episode of the podcast from another world 
Don't forget to follow Dave on all of his socials in case he's forgotten to say anything. Make sure that you check out Dave underscore Phantom out there on Twitter. He's also available on Instagram as the podcast from another world, formerly Dave's Pop Culture Podcast. And don't forget to follow the uh, slightly irregular podcast network. That's SIP Network on Twitter. Network SIP. I'm sorry, I'm backwards. I'm doing this all backwards for some reason. Network SIP on Twitter. Also SIP net.us where you'll find a listing of all the podcasts that are available on the network including back in time podcast paranormal pativity five faith from fans uh from the waste dead hand radio angry to dad podcast the podcast from another world and the terrible terror podcast i hope i said everybody there i believe that i did i might have forgot paranormal pativity podcast which i hope i didn't but if i didn't there you go it's on there uh, and then for the next episode of the podcast from another world, we are going to be looking at a Vincent Price film. And that's Dave and I are going to be talking about it. Now, I'm going to be running a test the day that this runs out because I want to make sure that it works and that I can do it. Uh, I am going to stream that film on the Terrible Terror podcast page on Saturday, May uh, 16th. Because the episode will come out the following Saturday. So you can join us and riff along with it. Uh, It is going to be on Facebook Live. So go follow the Terrible Terror Podcast Facebook page. It is a public page. So you should be able to see the Facebook Live without any problems. But there is, you know, always the possibility that I don't have a Facebook. I can't watch it. Well, it'll be there. um, And, you know, I'll be there chatting up with everybody, watching along with everybody and uh whoever decides to show up and come by and since the movie is in public domain it shouldn't get taken down uh, that's what i'm hoping uh but you never know maybe you have to move to a different platform to do it so i'm going to run a test today you may see something pop up on your feed just for a bit i'm going to make sure that it says that it's a test uh and uh then we'll go from there and uh i might even play a little of the film at least the beginning little snippet of that and if this works out and there's other public domain films that we could all watch together that you have ideas for that are in the realm let's go ahead and try it maybe we'll be able to see something some classic horror or something that dave's doing or something that i'm doing uh in the vup so with that being said make sure that you stay safe Stay healthy and take care of each other, okay? See you next time on an episode of uh, the Terrible Terror Podcast or the podcast from another world.